Good morning. This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust, and I'm here at KNCE, True Taos Radio. And um, yes, I'm here with Jillian Joyce of Rio Chiquito Consulting, and we're going to be talking largely about agriculture today, but this rain that's coming down this morning. And then uh, Jillian and I were talking about sleeping, and I thought about uh, my grandma, which made me think about between the rain and Jillian, who just came back from Ireland, and my grandma, uh, who uh, is, was Irish, uh, made me just start thinking about Ireland. Huh. <laughs> yeah. How was your trip there? It was so fabulous. I come from a super Irish Catholic family, and I, I'd always wanted to go and, and see the homeland, and I, was, I, I wasn't expecting how much the sense of, of belonging in history and place would hit me. It was uh, it was much stronger than I, I realized it would be. The phone's ringing, so I don't know what to do with that. I'm still learning here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and how long ago did your family leave Ireland? So it was actually a while ago. It was. Uh, I'm fourth generation. Okay. So so I'm 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 pretty detached from those folks that that came over. I think it was 1855. My family came over. Uh, right after the uh, potato famine, they made it through and and ran away immediately after. But the the stories of the culture and the traditions were uh, were definitely passed down. And, and yeah, uh, yeah, that's kind of similar to me. I said my Irish grandmother, but um, the reality is, is my family came over here in the 1620s um, after the O'Donnells had led a failed revolt <laughs> against the English, and the English were hunting them. And I, it, yeah, it's just interesting to. People see my last name and think, oh, you're Irish. And there's something, there was this mystique in the family about Ireland and, oh, we're so Irish and, and everything. But uh, um, we've been here on this continent for 400 years and, um, and, there's, and I have no relation to Ireland whatsoever. So I find your, your experience there to be pretty interesting. Well, that was also, that was another side to it, was realizing that uh, the, the, the genuine difference between Irish-American culture and uh, Irish culture. I think we, we tend to, to romanticize the old country and, and hold on to our rebel songs and, and old recipes, uh, pretty passionately. And, and, you know, if you're from Ireland, none of that stuff is quite as, quite as exciting. Quite as exciting. Yeah. 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 Here in the United States, we're, we're so much more obsessed with, uh, where, with our ancestors and where we came from and, and all of the, uh, all of that, the, the, the genealogy and everything. And I, you know, I lived for about seven years in Europe and I was just amazed that people in general, you know, there were always the, the, the people who were interested in their family and their history, but by and large, it was, people didn't really care. That just wasn't that important to them. Well, I, you know, sense of belonging is, is really important. And, and I think you notice it more, uh, when you have it less, um, if you're if you're still in the place that your ancestors have been, it's a, it's a bit different than if if you've become divorced from from that sense of belonging. And so I think that's a lot of why us Americans yeah, really work to create that sense of identity and belonging and and ancestral ties. Right. I th I think that's absolutely correct. I think that's yeah. a great observation. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, I still have that image of my grandma sitting downstairs in her house in Fort Collins, Colorado at four in the morning, smoking and drinking whiskey and coffee. So we'll just, we'll just go with the coffee this morning. Nice. 
<laughs> so yes, it is raining here in Taos. Um, I did want to mention that I was reading the National Weather Service Climate Prediction Center um, information last night, and we are scheduled, or it's predicted, which, you know, that's those things are always um, uh, subject to change as we move through the seasons, but to get more moisture this winter and, but also have a warmer winter. So the uh, potential for um, our precipitation to come more as rain or to come as snow that melts quicker is, is still a potential problem. And um, with 2008 having been one of the warmest or the warmest summer on record for the state, um, we, we definitely see that trend towards the warming. And that plays specifically into what we want to talk about today, which is agriculture. And I want to talk a little bit about how these, these climate changes are go upcoming climate changes are going to impact our agricultural scene here in the valley. So I am, I am definitely not a client scientist or climate scientist, um, uh, but we have been working with uh, someone with climate background uh, on the Rio Fernando uh, agricultural plan. And what we have found is that indeed we are uh, preparing for and expecting uh, warmer winters, uh, which will of course decrease snowpack and, and therefore uh, run off into the spring. Another challenge we face with these warmer winters is, is a lot of our heirloom fruit crops uh, require a certain amount of uh, frost time, of, of, of real cold time. And we're looking for the potential of, of those not getting the time they need and, and needing to find new ways and, and new environments and new systems for protecting our, our heirloom and heritage fruits um, and also identifying new crops that we can bring in that, that may be more resilient as climate changes. As the climate changes. So to back up just a little bit, um, Jillian uh, runs Rio Chiquito Consulting here in Taos. And uh, you grew up here, right? I did. Born yeah. and raised. Born and raised in Taos. And I'll let her talk about Rio Chiquito Consulting here in just a second. But the reason that, she, that I wanted to have her in here today to talk with us about Taos Land Trust Project is we at the Land Trust have hired Jillian to do the agricultural plan, the agricultural component of the uh, master plan for Rio Fernando Park, which we've talked, we seem to talk about just about every every other week on this show, pretty frequent. Uh, well, that's a big deal for the land trust, and I think it's a big deal for Taos, too. So Jillian's doing the agricultural component of that plan, and so that's why I wanted to get her in here to talk about that specifically. But yes, just going back to, the, to this climate question, um, we've got a lot of adapting to do. And I think about how with less snowpack or with snowpack that runs off earlier, how that influences the acequias and the farmers that depend on acequias. Yeah, and that's a, that's, that's a question we're asking all over the valley. And what we're looking at with the development of the Rio Fernando Park is, is really focusing on identifying as many uh, water-saving techniques and water system redundancies as we work to uh, bring this land back into a state of vitality and health and, and some small level of agricultural production. So we, we certainly hope to be able to use our acequia waters to the extent that they are available and, and can reasonably be taken out of the ditch without affecting our downstream comrades. 
But we're also looking at a lot of other opportunities for water harvesting and water storing. Certainly bringing the, the soil on the property back into optimal health. Really, the soil is the best place to, to store water. And so increasing the, the amount of organic material in the soil throughout the property is, is one of our, our number one goals in the early phases of development for the property. Also identifying opportunities to harvest water off of any impermeable surfaces on the property, our roofs and, and whatnot. Um, and identifying new ways of, of growing our, our long-time grown crops and identifying new crops that, that can handle the, the future of uh, likely less water. Yeah, one of the things we've talked about consistently is in developing the agricultural plan, how, what are those different methods that we can use to, because the, the there's a potential that we will absolutely have no water on, on the land. And so there's an opportunity there to use the professionals that we have and the experts that we have and to pull on traditional knowledge from our neighbors to model some dry land farming techniques. So you mentioned soil water retention and improving the soil to hold the water there longer. What are some other techniques that we might use at Rio Fernando Park to demonstrate low or no water use or extremely low water right. use and still still be able to grow crops? Right. So definitely uh, important um, methods that we'll be playing with. So the idea at one, there's, there's sort of two sides to this. One is the regeneration of the property overall, um, bringing the land and soil uh, back into a state of health. And two, providing demonstration gardens, uh, trainings, and platforms for communication in the community uh, about how we uh, move forward with agricultural production in, in the valley. So a really the, the major element of the agricultural programming that the community will be interfacing with on the property uh, will be these demonstrations of um, various soil building and, and water saving uh, techniques, and those are really those are uh, deeply intertwined soil building and water saving. So there's a, there's certain uh, earth moving uh, techniques that we can use, growing on contour, developing swales, um, looking at how water moves over the property, and 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 looking at how we can engage with the land to keep that water from running off the property too quickly. Break that down just for a second. When you say growing along contour, what do you mean? So what you, when you're growing along contour, you are keeping the water from flowing downhill. You're catching the water. And please jump in here, my, my uh, co-permaculturalist here. <laughs> and, and keeping it from running back into the, into the uh, river more quickly than necessary. So uh, while the water does eventually end up back in the watershed, uh, we're able to use it for uh, the longest possible period of time. We're also looking at rain gardens, um, waffle gardens, combining. There's a, there's a very interesting technique people are playing with now where we're combining permacultural techniques 
like the the Hugel culture bed, which is a highly water efficient bed, with uh, waffle gardening, which is of course a, a form of growing and, and water catchment for plants that we've seen in this region for thousands of years. Right. Um, so there's there are some really interesting experimentations and techniques that are being developed out there that combine traditional and and ancient water saving techniques with uh, more modern uh, and more recently introduced to this area techniques. Um, And we're very excited about those. Um, Some of these terms I just want to kind of unpack for the listeners because we're we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're in it. Th- we're in it and we're, we're constantly talking about these things. So a waffle garden is something that I, I saw first at Zuni Pueblo. And it, it literally is, um, your garden actually looks like the print of a waffle, right? It's um, these squares, maybe one square meter or something like that, that are dug out of the ground and then the the earth is built up along the along the edges of it and i'm describing this with my hands as we're on the radio <laughs> and i'm realizing wow that's it's a good description with his hands yeah right yeah it works i with can my, see it really well yeah, exactly um and but that allows the water to sit in those in those um pockets right longer and um and to, and to also get the shading of some of some of that buildup of the wall Exactly, or or uh, the edge effect, as we we call it in in the permaculture. Which world. is, which is that uh, at these points of of uh, man, it's early in the morning to be thinking about. <laughs> Just for the record, my background is is uh, economics and sociology, so this is. Uh, She's this doing is just my though. hobby. You're doing awesome. Um, so the edge effect is is the the point where two environments come together. Uh, uh, they've found in in permaculture and and in other agricultural research and growing research that those are the most vital and productive uh, areas on a property, or in a, in a space. In the case of of waffle gardening. Right. You think just a, a great example of that? I think is is the fence line. Right. Right. Um, if if you just go out and you look at a fence line, you see that there's there's actually more growth right along the fence, where it marks two changes, uh, in in two different systems. Obviously, because on one side maybe you have it managed this way, and on the other side you have it managed another way. But you know you get birds sitting on the fence and pooping out seeds, and you get a buildup of organic material that then, like you said, holds the holds the water there. So it's, yeah, that's an interesting thing. You just go look at a fence line and you see that that edge creates more, more, it's more vital. Yeah. yeah. We're also looking at, uh, playing with, with perennial pasture and perennial grains that, that have, uh, deeper roots and, and therefore can withstand, uh, drought better. Um, looking at using shade trees, uh, in order to decrease evaporation off the land, uh, as well as cover crops in the areas where, where we're growing crops. Uh, we already have some, some great cover crops happening with our, our, uh, white clover and our hairy vetch coming up uh, in our in our very first demonstration that's alive on the property thanks to Ben Wright. Right. Uh, he's he uh, has been working with kids to to develop these hugel beds that are just so vital. They're they're amazing. They are amazing. That's um, and this is something I didn't know too much about. But basically, you've ta- they take wood, some of the trees that we've cut down and the right. branches, and Tell me more. It's great. We've been able to use uh, trees that that uh, were not playing a vital role on the property, uh, trees that were 
uh, invasive species and, and trees that that we want to have come down in the long run anyway and and use that material to develop these these interesting uh, dugout and then raised beds. Uh, and and these the wood in these beds, the material in these beds, you have to combine, you know, the right ratios of, of carbon and, and nitrogen in them to, to get them to decompose properly. Uh, but they've been found to be extremely water efficient. And uh, I don't think any of us had played with them a whole lot prior to this demonstration. Um, yeah. But we have been all really blown away by how effective they are. Yeah, they were built like a month ago, and there's the growth on them is is amazing. They look like very large chia pets. Right, they do. Really. Look like, yeah, yeah. For those of us who were like around old. when chia pets were uh, ch all the rage. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I had a chia pet. I uh, always wanted one. Oh well, <laughs> you were you missed out. <laughs> um, and then, and then I also wanted to talk about the swales. So, so. Describe for me a swale. So a swale is looking at the contour of a property, and and we're a little bit limited uh, with this on this property because uh, the Rio Fernando Park was historically agricultural land. Um, much of it was uh, leveled, uh, likely in the in the 1930s or possibly even earlier, um, and so we don't have in the historically uh, agricultural, the primary historical agricultural areas, we don't have a lot of uh, incline to engage with. But there are parts of the it's, property. It's mostly flat. It's mostly really flat. Um, but there are areas of the property as the property meanders down toward the river where we have this opportunity to catch water more efficiently. And essentially what a swale does is, is you, uh, you dig out a She's long... She's describing this with her hands. I'm describing quite this with well. my hands, yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just in case everybody knows. <laughs> uh, um, you, you identify the contour of a hill. I'm still describing this with my hands and dig out along that contour and build up soil on the, the lower end of the contour so that when it rains, uh, the water is stopped by this, this on-contour mound and, is, uh, and then uh, permeates into the ground from there. And, and so you not only have this moist uh, area where the water is permeating, but also immediately below uh, the swale, you have moisture moving uh, very slowly through that space, and it becomes a very uh, vital uh, and, and moist area for growing. And so you're recharging that shallow right. aquifer better. Right. So, so, the, so really the goal that we have um, at Rio Fernando Park, as far as the agriculture piece, as Jillian's talking about, is, is to have a wide variety of different techniques for people to come and see and to learn from and to take, take home and hopefully employ. Yeah, I, uh, I, the dream for, for this property, um, among many, is, is to provide a platform for conversation and exploration and experimentation um, and transmission of agricultural techniques, um, both new and old, um, to the community. So the, the majority of agriculture that's happening in, in the county, of course, is happening on, on private land um, by individual farmers. And uh, 
we don't always uh, know how to share that information or or have those opportunities to to have those conversations about how do we how do we approach this changing climate that we're dealing with. And uh, so our hope is that the Rio Fernando Park and the agricultural demonstrations and activities that happen there can can provide that space um, for us to to learn together and, and explore new possibilities as as we move into a new era of agricultural production in Taos. All right, like I said, I am here with Jillian Joyce of Rio Chiquito Consulting, and we're talking about agriculture in Taos Valley and specifically agricultural demonstration projects at the new Rio Fernando Park uh, there in downtown Taos. Just before the break, we were talking about um, using the the park for demonstration projects and the different types of educational opportunities that we could provide to area growers. And that made me think of this term you've brought up before, civic agriculture. What is that? So civic agriculture, my background is uh, sociology and um, in, with, a, with a particular focus in uh, agriculture, um, place-based identity, and, and the intersection between community, culture, and economic development. Um, and uh, so civic agriculture is, has been a term that I've, I've found uh, useful over time. Uh, it was developed uh, by a sociologist um, who's now passed away, Thomas Lyson, back in 2002. And it talks, it speaks to uh, what, what the UN refers to, what a lot of development specialists refer to as the multifunctional benefits of small-scale, uh, locally-oriented agriculture. And, and I think we're all sort of intuitively aware of these, but we don't uh, explicitly talk about them a lot. The, the benefits of not just having fresh local produce available to us, but the way having that food available to us and the, the community connections that the distribution of that local food and the historical connections and, and the cultural connections that that local food uh, provides for our community. Um, and, and so civic agriculture is talking about agriculture, small-scale local agriculture, as an arm of, of not just economic development, potentially, but uh, just as importantly, community development. Of course, civic agriculture is, is what we had all over the world, um, before the Green Revolution. Kind of naturally. Right. That is a uh, natural human... Right. Right. And so, you know, some sociologists coming up with a term for it in 2002 some, for something we've been doing forever is, is, is a little bit funny. But um, I think what's exciting about what's happened in recent decades is that there has been, a, for the first time in history, a real conscious, thoughtful effort to, to cultivate that local agriculture, that sense of identity, that sense of community. There's a... Based around right. agriculture. Right. I, what we've seen uh, in the 21st century is, is a real uh, backlash against the results of, of globalization. Kind of going back to what we were talking about, about uh, Americans being fascinated with their roots and their identity one of the results of globalization was was sort of this anywhere town where you can you can pull into any town in the United States of course with some wonderful exceptions like our own and you could be anywhere 
you could be in Kansas, you could be in California, right. you could be in Colorado. And communities around the world have have felt this sort of displacement of identity and culture and community because of that uh, development of the Anytown. And so there's been internationally a real effort to actively and consciously turn our places back into real places in which our identities are rooted and, um, and, and to find the unique character mm-hmm. inherent in each place and, and exactly. do something with that. Exactly. And, and the, uh, local food movement in, in many ways is very influenced by that movement. And, uh, and in my mind, um, one of the things I specialize in is creative and cultural economy development. Uh, I see agriculture as the foundation of that redeveloping of of place and identity, uh, and the rest of the cultural and creative economy and, and narratives of place are built on those literal roots uh, in our historic agricultural traditions. Is the Taos Farmers Market and the other small farmers markets we have a piece of that? Absolutely. I think farmers markets uh, have have become famous for their ability to bring community together and to become places where ideas, innovations uh, are shared, um, traditions are brought back. Uh, we have Red Willow back and and mm-hmm. rocking it these days, right. and I, I think they're, I mean, obviously they're doing a really amazing work out there, and and I think the Taos Farmers Market plays that role in many ways as well. When I think about the, f- the farmer's market um, and culture and culture development and economic development, I-, I think about, you know, you go there to, I'm going to go there and I'm going to buy some carrots from, from Daniel and, uh, and, and some greens. But what I see is that the selling of that agricultural produce has created a venue for musicians for uh, the guy who types the poems on his thing, you give him the idea, he types a poem. Some folks who are making soaps and candles and essence oils. And and then you've got Frank and, and Nancy with the scones and all of that. So there's so even though it's a farmer's market set, centered around produce, there's all these other things that that is, has allowed to grow. Right. It, again, the farming is providing the, the roots or the foundation for uh, a lot of, of locally based uh, small scale economic development and, and community development. Is there a place somewhere else that you can think of that is an example that we might want to look at to deepen that civic agricultural thing? Thing? That um, piece? <laughs> It's an interesting struggle. I think a lot of places are are it's a it's an experiment to bring back something that that we lost across the mm-hmm. country. There is a town in Vermont. Oh man, what is the what is the name of that town? Uh, there's a, a lovely book written about it, The Town That Food Saved. The Town That Food Saved. Yes. Okay. Um, and and they've become one of the really important models, um, both for f- what to do and what, what to watch out for in local community agriculture uh, development. One of the things that they have thought 
through really well is is looking holistically at the local and regional food system, really working to to make sure that all of the inputs are coming from inside the community. You know, do we do we have a local source for compost? Do we have a local source for seed? Uh, do we have all of the local necessary local infrastructure to support a, a fully local system? Um, and that's something that they've been working on and, and, and doing a really nice job at. They've also identified something that I think we see here in Taos and in, in many rural communities where this new agricultural movement has been born in the last couple decades of, of folks who are not historically farmers mm-hmm. um, and who, who don't come from that background and culture. And they come into already existent uh, historically agricultural uh, and or working class communities um, and the infrastructure and relationships and ties uh, are are not always uh, very well or very proactively developed uh, right. between the 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 older agricultural community and the newer agricultural community. Um, and I think that's one of the great lessons uh, from that book, the town that that food saved. And that disconnect also exists in between landowners and the people who want to farm. I was right. with Elie Romero. Uh, on his piece of land up in San Cristobal, which um, he's put under conservation easement with the Taos Land Trust. I was with him two weeks ago, and he, um, you know, he's 90 plus years old. He's a pretty amazing guy. Um, but one of the things he kept saying to me the whole time that we were on that piece of land was that, that the reason he preserved it is because he wants somebody to come along and farm it. And he kept asking, do you know somebody who would want to farm this? Do you know there's water here? The, the, the fields are already laid out um, just as they were when he was a kid. And, uh, um, and so linking people who want to farm with people who own land seems to be a key component of that. Absolutely. And uh, I am also on the board of Alianza Agricultura de Taos. Uh, which uh, was born originally as the Agricultural Resolution Team back in 2014. Uh, and uh, the Agricultural Resolution Team was, was born in, in response to uh, the agri- agricultural land tax exemption um, and the revaluation of real property in Taos County uh, to determine uh, which properties uh, still retained uh, sufficient agricultural production to justify uh, the agricultural um, land tax exemption. Uh, And so one of Alianza Agricultura's uh, main focuses is to uh, work with those landowners who who are trying to preserve uh, their land for agricultural purposes and identify all of the different potential avenues through which they might be able to keep that land in production. And uh, one of the relationships Alianza has developed is with uh, Landlink New Mexico, which uh, was uh, uh, the brainchild of the Mid-Region Council of Governments out of Albuquerque. Um, but uh, they have very kindly uh, made the resource available to the whole state. And what do they do? Landlink New Mexico. So Landlink is, is, a, is a very fancy version of uh, Craigslist, for folks involved in farming. Um, it is a place where you can, if you are a landowner, 
uh, and uh, can't keep your land in production and want to find uh, a, a farmer to, to take it over, uh, you can list your land on there and, and see if you can make some connections. If you are a farmer who uh, is needing labor, you can list your needs on there. If you are someone who wants to learn how to farm, uh, you can list yourself on there uh, as a potential apprentice to to a farmer who's needing some support. Um, also, wonderfully, LandLink provides um, pre-developed uh, uh, paperwork and contracts uh, for people to work with um, so that you can develop contracts and leases uh, that uh, are, are fair and, and protect and, and serve all parties involved. I did not know that resource was out there. So LandLink New Mexico. Well, and that's that's a that's their biggest issue right now. If you if you go on, there's not a lot listed on there right now because they they lost a lot of the funding and staff resources they had uh, to be able to do the outreach side of the project. And so Alianza Agricultura is uh, going to be serving as um, sort of a pilot project for uh, LandLink to be able to find individual organizations within different counties who can take on that outreach effort. Um, and so uh, we, we just got funding finally after a, a couple years of organizational development, and uh, we're going to start uh, working on that, those outreach efforts uh, over the coming year. Awesome. This is Jim O'Donnell of the Taos Land Trust, and I'm here with Jillian Joyce of Rio Chiquito Consulting. This is KNCE True Taos Radio 93.5 FM. You know, when we were talking about the, the farmer's market and civic agriculture, and I thought of all the benefits that the, that the farmer's market brings to, uh, to, to our town and, uh, um, and to certain people who can go there, I, it, it also made me think about the criticism that I hear of um, people who say, I can't afford to go, go to the farmer's market. I can't get my vegetables at the farmer's market. It's too expensive. And so, so in, in thinking about civic agriculture, how do you expand or how might you expand um, access to something like the farmer's markets and, and all of the wonderful things of the farmer's markets to... Um, a larger population, particularly um, part of the population who is is less economically secure? Well, I think, I mean, we are very lucky to have the Double Up, up Bucks um, program uh, in New Mexico at our farmer's markets. Um, and what is that? Double Up Bucks uh, allows uh, people who are on what was historically called food stamps um, to be able to use their uh, funds at farmers markets uh, and receive uh, twice the value of what they have available to them if it's spent on fresh food at, at farmers markets. So that's a big benefit. You can go and use your your food stamps at the farmers market and get double the value by getting produce from there as opposed to right. say Smith's or, or SIDS or something. Right, and so that's one exciting opportunity. Um, one of the challenges is that uh, the United States has some of the lowest uh, overall food prices um, in the developed world. Um, and so we have uh, developed an economy uh, where having cheap food 
uh, access to cheap food, subsidized uh, food, is necessary to maintain um, the expected standard of living or, or a real standard of living of any sort in this country. Um, and that's a real large systemic issue that, that we face. Um, and the solutions to that are, are not simple. Um, right, because you don't want to just raise prices on food for no, people. No, to, yeah. to ask people to, uh, to take on the, the burden of the real costs of food are, are not realistic in a society where our uh, median and, and lower wages are what they are. Right. Um, and at the same time, you know, we, we cannot ask uh, anyone who's farmed knows that it is some of the hardest work out there, and and we need to. And make it's very sure hard to make a living as a farmer. Very hard to make a living, and there's not a lot of security. Uh, so it's it's also not fair to ask our farmers who uh, do not benefit um, from subsidies. Uh, uh, to lower the prices of, of what they're growing and providing for our community. Um, so that's a real uh, conundrum and, and disconnect. Uh, one of the solutions, honestly, is to develop programs where people can maintain small kitchen gardens. Uh, grow their own food. Grow their own food. Um, and that's, that's historically how uh, people of a broad range of incomes were able to access uh, local and fresh produce was through growing, growing it themselves and through trading with neighbors and and family members. And, and is that um, that sort of educational opportunity going to be part of the agricultural plan for Rio Fernando Park? Absolutely. That is uh, one of the major goals of, of the agricultural programming at the park is to uh, provide opportunities for people to come together, uh, both uh, non-farmers who, who want to develop kitchen gardeners, uh, people who are already doing kitchen gardens and, and want to expand their skills, um, and real serious uh, larger scale farmers who are uh, looking to uh, expand the, the methods they're using on their, their land or uh, into a broader range of crops. Um, we, we really want to serve everyone in the community uh, who wants to be growing food. I'm not sure that this really falls under uh, the capacity that Taos Land Trust has, but but it, it, it seems tied the, tied into a component of, uh, of, a, of a home kitchen garden uh, educational program would be how you cook the food. Because it, 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 it strikes me as amazing um, it, how often I hear somebody look at a leek and they're like, well, what do you do with that? Or a cabbage or a cauliflower. And so you may learn how to grow these things, but then how do you consume it? Right. Um, and so food recipes, how do you cook cooking programs associated with, uh, and nutritional programs associated with a home garden might encourage, you know, they, if, Feeds off of each other, so to speak, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. Nice one. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the programming we're talking about is is beyond the capacity and mission of Taos Land Trust. Um, the the major service the land trust is providing here is the platform and the space uh, for these conversations to happen, and um, it's uh, it's going to it's going to be a collaborative community effort to 
to work with um, interested parties, organizations, and individuals in the community who are are looking for that space uh, um, to provide their skills and, and knowledge and, and uh, start the conversations we need to be having. Um, we are planning at the Land Trust um, a uh, outdoor classroom or partially outdoor classroom kitchen uh, where we will be able to do some level of um, uh, education uh, and uh, community projects around uh, harvesting, processing, preserving, and preparing foods and, and medicinals and, and products that come off our land. How many people are employed in agriculture in our community? So that is nearly impossible to tell. A, a lot of planners over the years have, have tried to identify decent uh, numbers on that. Uh, some of our plans reference uh, U.S. Census Bureau uh, data, which wasn't wasn't really designed to, to measure agricultural production, and it definitely wasn't designed to uh, measure agricultural production in a community like Taos. Why are we un- unique? Oh, or we're, in what ways? We're unique in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, for one, when it comes to agricultural production, a huge portion of our farmers are employed in agriculture as a secondary income source and are employed uh, elsewhere as their primary income source. And so when you look at U.S. Census Bureau data, you're looking at people's employment in their primary employment uh, by industry. And so there's no measurement of, of all the people out there who are growing hay on the side or growing vegetables on the side. So they don't get counted in the data. So if you have a job at Smith's and you run cows on your on your land, you don't count as a farmer. No, you're not counted by the Census Bureau as being a farmer. The the better source for agricultural data is the USDA agricultural census. And that data is, is probably is better because it allows us to capture primary and secondary employment okay. in agriculture. However, they have historically always been uh, a bit challenged to, to count the number of, of farmers in places like northern New Mexico, which are very small and rural. And, and, um, and you know, we, we tend to be a little bit slower to respond to uh, government intrusions into our lives. And we, uh, we also have a, a very large under-the-table economy. And mm-hmm. so it's very hard for the USDA to identify all of the agricultural producers who are functioning uh, below the radar and under the table. And, and that's been an issue for them for a long time. Further, they've, you know, they've really targeted their efforts in the areas of the country where we're dealing with major commodity crops more than in these very small, small right. farm rural areas. So if, you're, if you've got 10,000 acres of soybeans, you're e- more easy, easily counted than... You're counted. Right. Yeah. You're counted than um, is someone who's growing a small plot and taking it to the farmer's market. Exactly. And, and so the numbers we have are, are always um, an undercount. But the USDA really is working on improving its outreach and, and counting of the small rural areas of the country like uh, northern New Mexico. And so the great thing is we're getting 
somewhat better numbers over time. The hard thing is it doesn't allow us a, a very good way to measure change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the USDA census uh, data for agricultural production in Taos County, you see fairly slow growth from the 60s into the 90s, and then you see really stunning exponential growth um, after that. I, I believe between the I'm pulling these numbers out of my head, but I believe if you look at the USDA numbers for 97 to 2007, you see about a 40% increase in the number of farms and a 75% increase in uh, the sales of agricultural products in the county. Okay. And that's, if that were true... We'd have this booming agricultural economy, which we're constantly talking about how agricultural struggling here. Right. And, and that's not exactly what's happening. So I think we, I, the USDA is capturing a trend is my guess that indeed we are seeing an increase in agricultural production in the County. Um, however, the extent of that increase is, is not what we're actually able to measure in the data because we're also seeing mixed up with that increase in agriculture, their increase in outreach efforts. Uh-huh, right, right. So just the fact that they are going out and, and doing more in-depth research, talking to more people, it's impacting the data in and of itself. Right, exactly. Right. Okay. So, so that, um, that incongruity in the data or, and, the, and the difficulty to count who's farming and who's doing what here, how does that impact us when it comes to federal funds, state funds, county planning, town planning, all of these different different uh, levels. Well, there are a lot of impacts. Um, you know, I don't I don't know explicitly how it affects our funding for, say, extension services or or uh, USDA funding into our region. We do have a good bit of USDA funding in our region overall, but that's because it's a very large area. But it it can have an effect on how we look at agriculture from a policy perspective and from an economic development perspective. It would be very easy for a planner not deeply familiar with Taos to say, man, according to the Census Bureau, you know, less than 2% of the population is engaged in agricultural production. Therefore, there's, there's really no reason to invest in, in mm-hmm. the industry. However, we've, we've been pretty lucky in a lot of ways to, to have planners working in the community over the years who do the work to combine uh, combine their collection of uh, secondary statistical data on the community with uh, knowledge of the community and on-the-ground interviews with the community. Um, and so despite the, the challenges with the numbers, there is a awareness at, I think, both the town and the county level that uh, agriculture is is an absolutely essential component that must be considered in our physical planning, our economic development planning, and our um, community development efforts. Okay. So we've only got a couple minutes left, and one of the things that you uh, you asked me when we were talking the other day was to uh, to allow you to plug the 2020 census. Oh, yeah. So that's so, a big change, but yet it relates to how our how we count how things. we count things. Yeah. So the 2020 census is if 
you've been listening to the news, which it's it's hard to avoid these days, you've probably heard that there is a decent bit of concern at the federal level about the capacity of the Census Bureau to do the 2020 census thoroughly. They're going to have less funding available to do follow-ups in communities. Usually they, they have, they're pretty good about following up and, and, and capturing everyone, but, but uh, they're concerned that that's going to be harder this time. And I think uh, we're all often a little taken aback when someone knocks on our door and, and says, excuse me, you haven't you I, haven't been responding to your mail. I'm from the government. I've been I'm looking from the for government. You. <laughs> I've been looking for you. I know where you live and work. And by golly, uh, I'm going to ask you some some personal questions now. But I we uh, we need to look more broadly at the role this data plays and and the public service we're really doing by answering these questions. If I recall correctly, the Census Bureau, the the data collected by the Census Bureau affects as much as $6 billion coming into our state from the federal government for infrastructure. $6 billion. $6 billion. To New Mexico only. To New Mexico that serves our schools, our infrastructure, our uh, social programs, this is really, really important. You know, every one of us is is concerned about the state of our schools. Every one of us is concerned about what the potholes are doing to to the wheels on our cars, and and so many of us in our community gain benefit from from federal social programs. And the only way we assure that we have uh, anywhere near the appropriate funding is if we can justify. Uh, the numbers we we need to be able to identify. So so the more accurate count we get, the more likely we are to get the services we need, whether it is road or roads or EBT food stamp dollars right. or uh, Medicaid right. dollars, investment in education. So. And even beyond that, there is the whole level of of people like myself who rely on this data to push planning and policy and grant opportunities for the area. This data is used by um, a huge portion of the nonprofits in our state and in our community, um, by our town, by our county, and by our state to to try to pull in funds uh, to improve our community. And, and without being able to prove the numbers of people we need to be able to serve uh, and without being able to identify and understand the issues that can be identified through this data, we're all fairly crippled in our ability to to justify our needs. So I think the message in short here is, as much as uh, it might scare you, please participate in the 2020 census because it benefits all of us in this community. Yes, and, and if you do have any concerns, of course, this is two years out, but, but the Census Bureau is working very hard on outreach right now. Um, if you do have a Census Bureau worker knock on your door, and we also have the American Community Survey is a smaller scale survey that's done every couple years, and we regularly have ACS um, Census Bureau workers meandering through Taos and knocking on people's doors. Um, if you have a Census Bureau worker or someone who says they are, knock on your door and you have any concerns, there is a 1-800 number out of Denver you can call, and they are so helpful. Within one minute, they will say, oh, yeah, we have a guy named Bob Smith who is working in your neighborhood right now. You're fine. 
Right, right. Okay. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. It's almost 10 o'clock. Um, this is Jim O'Donnell of the Taos Land Trust, and we've been here with Jillian Joyce of uh, Rio Chiquito Consulting, and we'll definitely have Jillian back on uh, soon. So thank you very much, and we'll be back in two weeks, and I believe we'll be talking about uh, walkability in our town or in, and bikeability. So uh, thank you, and until next time.